Well, this morning, we're continuing in the work of the Spirit, and we gave last week, or at least we shared last week, the example in Genesis 24. Do you remember the example? How does the Holy Spirit accomplish or set into reality in God's people the finished work of the atonement of Jesus. Jesus has completed everything necessary for our salvation to be given to us, correct? However, that salvation will not be ours in reality until it is set in us by the Holy Spirit. And so it is necessary after the resurrection, and in the resurrection, God has declared that the ministry of the Lord Jesus has been accepted as to the forgiveness of sins and the satisfaction of his justice, correct? But now the next step is what he has accomplished as a man and for mankind, his people. In order for that to become ours, the next step is necessary, which is the ascension. So he must ascend into the heavens. Why? Because he must be crowned king of kings and lord of lords. He must sit at the right hand of the Father in the throne of God having been given all authority in heaven and earth, remember Matthew 28, 18, in order to, by the Father's authority to him, to send the Holy Spirit into the world to gather his people. So that's the ascension. That's what we're talking about. And you remember last week, by looking at the example in Genesis 24, <clears throat> Abraham was very specific to instruct his servant to go only to his own kindred, to his own what? Pre-chosen people. Do we see that? This is not something that came from Calvin. This is not something that came because of the Reformation. This is not some new doctrine of the New Testament. As far back as you go, God only calls to himself his own people. Now, the problem with that is we don't like it. Because you see, there's something in the nature of fallen, corrupted, darkened-minded people that says that God does not have the right to choose and that he is obligated to choose everyone equally. Amen? That's what we're seeing out there in the world. All this obligation. And it's a massive movement against the sovereignty of God. Do you see what's going on? It's not about Republicans and liberals and conservatives. It's about God. It's about his right to rule his creation. And so there is a pre-chosen people 
And so Abraham says, go to my country, my country, and go to my peeps, my people, my kindred, and find what? A wife for my son. Do you see the possessiveness? And that is a picture of what the Holy Spirit is given to do by the Lord Jesus. Go to my people and find my wife. In other words, gather those who are members of my body, the church. So this morning, what we want to do is to Look at Romans 8, 28 to 30. Very popular area of scripture about which many believers are confused and don't understand how it works. Although we like to repeat it. So we're going to be looking at Romans 8, 28 to 30. May I strongly encourage you to read these 8, 9, and 10. These three verses. I didn't do well in school math. May I strongly encourage you to read Romans 8, 29, 8, 28, 29, and 30 many, many times. Many, many times. And in that set of verses, we're going to look at five theologically rich, significant words that the Holy Spirit has given to the Apostle Paul to give us a theological understanding and progression, if you would, of the way we have been saved and its final result. Are you with me on this? That's what 28 to 30 is all about. It's the Holy Spirit giving to Paul. Many people say, well, Paul thought of this and Paul said that. He did. But it's the Holy Spirit in Paul doing that. So I like to emphasize it's the Holy Spirit rather than emphasizing Peter, James, John, this man, that man, or whatever. It's the Holy Spirit. So by the time we come to this passage, the Apostle Paul, by the Spirit, remember, has explained that all humanity is under sin. Remember in Romans 8? All humanity, is this in your notes? That all humanity is condemned. So by the time we come to 320, everybody is condemned. There ain't nobody left out of this except for one man. And Paul begins to explain how, has explained how the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. So he's been doing this great work of Presenting the gospel in verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation for everyone who, what, does good work, who merits it, who is a Pentecostal, who's Catholic, who's, no, who believes to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. For in it, verse 17, in the gospel, what? What is revealed in the gospel? The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel from what? Faith to faith. Beginning with faith and all the way through a life of faith. For as it is written, remember in Habakkuk 2, 4, what? The just shall live by faith. So that's what's happening. By the time we get to Romans eight twenty eight, he's explained an enormous amount of man's dilemma, and God's remedy for that dilemma. So by the time we come to Romans 8.20, Paul has given, has taught them how God saves through the power of the gospel. 
Now, Romans 8, 28. And what? Because of everything that Paul has already said. Do you see where it is? Romans 8, 28. Are you with me on this? And what? Because of everything Paul has said up to this time in Romans, you know, 1, 1 to 8, 27. Gathering it all up. Gather it all up in your mind. Gather all of that up in your mind. And he says this. We know. How do you know? Because he's already told you. How do you know? Because he's already taught you. We know what? That God works or causes all things to work together for the good for those who love him and who are the called according to his purpose. Now, let's stop for a moment. How many of you have ESV Bibles? Okay, now look at the translation in ESV. Does it say, for we know that God works all things together for the good? Or does it say, we know that all things work together for good? Which one is it? You see the word all things in the Greek can either be the subject, all things work, or the word all things can be the object. All God works all things. Are you with me on this? It can be either way. Grammatically, it can go either way. So some Bibles translate, for we know that all things work together, and some translate what? We know that God my disposition is this. Always make God the actor. Correct? I think it's a mistake to say all things work together. I believe the emphasis of Paul is this. And we know what? That God works all things. All things together for the good. For those who love him. And who are the called according to his purpose. I want to make sure you see the reason for that. Because you're going to wonder why. Why does he keep saying we know that God works when my Bible says all things. The word things can be either the subject or the object. It's a toss up in the Greek. Either way is correct grammatically. But I think the preference is theologically to say God works all things. So I just wanted to make sure you see that. Because there would be some confusion if we're not careful. So, he's already said, then, all things work together for the good. For whom? For whom? For a specific pre-chosen people. For whom do all things work? For whom is God working all things for the good? For those who what? Love him and are the called or are called according to his purpose, his, his eternal purpose. I mean, Ephesians 1, 5. His eternal purpose. The counsel of his will. So he just said that. Now look at verses 29 and 30. In these next verses, the Holy Spirit explains why we can know that Romans 8.28 is true. Why we can depend on Romans 8.28. And he does this. The Holy Spirit says, look, what I've just told you is the truth. And let me give you five theological underpinnings or five theological pillars, if you would, or pilings to use the New Orleans term. You got to have pilings underneath your house if you want it to stand in this city. So I've just told you God works all things, Lester. I've just told you that we know that God works all things. And you should say, well, how do you know? Where's the proof? Where's the proof? Paul says, let me tell you how you know this. I'm going to give you five Deep, deep pilings that go all the way in 
to God himself. Each piling goes all the way into God himself. You know how pilings go down? They push it and push it until it fails. You know what I mean? It hits something strong, right, Steve? We call that what? Failure. In other words, it gets down to the bed, to the bed rock. So these five pilings are driven all the way and set upon the rock of Jesus Christ. Amen? These are like five pilings, five theological statements, if you would. Let's see them for what they are. So Paul's going to give us those things. And he says, here's the five pilings that Romans 8.28 sits on. Now, you may never have considered it this way, but I believe this is what was happening here. And so he says this. For those whom, who God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he might be the firstborn of, born of what? Many brethren. For whom he... Are we right? For those whom he... Okay. He what? Are you with me? Can you read it together? For those whom he what? For no, he predestined. Hmm. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also what? Justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Five words. Five theological pilings that together form the support theologically of the work of the Holy Spirit in applying the finished work of our redemption in Christ. Any one of these pilings fail, the whole building falls. Because we may look at them and it's certainly listed as five, but each of these five is interconnected with the others and the entire five form a set, a completed set. So without one, you ain't got none. Without one, you don't have any of them. So we'll talk about it as one um, of five pieces, but they're five sets, if you would, of five aspects or facets of the same work. Can we see that? So let's not consider this as five things that God does. Let's consider this as five ways of understanding, viewing God's work from our perspective. Because from the perspective of God, it, I've done it. But then he shows us, this is what I'm doing as I have already done it. Now, before I continue, I didn't put this in your notes. <clears throat> Look at the verbs. He what? Foreknew us. Do you see that? You see where I am? For those whom he foreknew. Do we see that? Oh, you're with me here. I need to know if you're with me. And then he said, those whom he foreknew, he what? Predestined. And then he called and then he justified and then he, he glorified. It's significant to know this very important issue here. And I don't have it in your notes. So you're going to just have to write it down. These five verbs are in what the Greek called the aorist, A-O-R-I-S-T, the aorist tense. These five verbs are in the aorist. So what? What do I care? The aorist means this, very significant. 
It is a past, completed action having present effect. Now, can you grab that? You must see that. It is a what? How many of you know this man? This is O'Hearn. Good to see you, brother. It is a past what? Completed. It ain't going on no more. It's finished. It's done once, never to be done again. Do we see that? It's hugely significant. It's a done deal. It's happened. But it has present day effect. That which has happened is still producing its effect in my life. That's Elliot. It's okay for Elliot to scream because his middle name is Peter. And so all he's doing is trying to keep up with me. And so that's fine, little brother. We are with you. Amen? Okay, did we get that? What tense is it? The aorist tense. What does aorist tense mean? A past completed, completed what? Action having present effect or present day effect. In other words, it's what had happened then is a completed work, but it's still ministering to us today. Now, if you don't get this, what's going to happen is this. If you don't get it, then when life comes against you, when evil comes against you, you are going to think your boat is going to sink. Because you don't see that the boat that you were in, the ark of safety, Jesus Christ the Lord, is an unsinkable vessel. And thems who are in it are not going to be thrown overboard. Because the power of God who put us in will what? Keep us in. Amen? It's just important to know these things. So when all hell comes against you, you don't think, ah, and you begin to allow, allow, cooperate with the worst of what's happening to cause you great damage rather than saying, wait a minute. Wait a minute. This fury of the storm can come all day long, but it's like Noah's boat. Lashed and sashed and up and down and all back. But ain't nobody lost. Ain't nobody lost. And we're in the storm of our life, okay? But Mike, we're going through. Because the ark of Christ is stronger than any storm. These five words tell us this. So let's first of all look at the word for new. And I think I can get through this in the next 40 minutes. This is a challenge. We're taking five words and I think to do for knowledge today and next week to do the next four. We'll just see how that works out. There's a huge challenge because each of these words literally should take up two or three teachings themselves. But I just felt the Holy Spirit say, don't do it that much detail. So, okay, let's, let's not. For those whom he foreknew. Are you with me in verse 7 out uh, 29? Everybody with me? God saves us on the basis or as a result of his foreknowledge. He doesn't save us because I said, 
Jesus, I need to be saved. That's not why you got saved. Are you with me? Can we begin to disassociate what's going on in our lives from me being the principal or the actor or the subject? Can we do that? And can we begin to realize that the subject, the actor, the principal is God himself? Amen? I am the object. God is the subject. Now that's difficult because we so much love me. Me, 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 me. It's all about me. The word for knowledge is the word prognosco. Prognosco, you see that there. The word pro means in front of, before. In front of, before. That's pretty easy, isn't it? The word gnosko has to do with personal knowledge. Personal knowledge. Now, I want to make sure we see this. The word gnosko simply means to know something. To know. It can and certainly does contain and involve God's knowledge of what you're going to do. Okay? God knows ahead of time every thought you're going to think. Every attitude you're going to cop. Every place you're going to go and you shouldn't have gone. Every emotion that you gave into, every attitude. He knows it, Anthony, already. He can look down into your life, even before you're created in Rosa, see it all. You got that? Cody, you got that? Cody, you got that? Do we have that? It includes that, Paul. However, may I repeat that word? However, Darlene, that's not the primary emphasis of that word. Right, Andy? Andy's my theological backbone in here. I have to make sure we're doing it right. He'll tell me if I'm not doing it right. Thank God somebody will. It does include knowledge of things and activities. Do we get that? Sure. God's knowledge of us is how much? Comprehensive and immediate. It's comprehensive and immediate. We ain't hiding nothing from God. And before we did it, he already knew we were going to do it. And we, we got upset about it. He was already there having forgiven it. Chris? Andy? But mostly... And the core meaning and the most significant aspect of this meaning is a personal knowledge relationally. It is a relational knowledge. It is a knowledge of the person personally, my personal knowledge, which therefore, because I know you so well and comprehensively, I know everything you're going to do. You see, I know your activities. Why? Because I know you. You got that? It is a personal knowledge of. Jack, it's not just something you did one, two, three, but it's who you are. Who are you to me? That's what this word is all about. 
Let's look at a couple of scriptures here. Jesus said, John 14, I am the good shepherd. I know, gnosko. I know my own and my own what? They know me, gnosko. It is a personal knowing and developing through intimacy and relationship and fellowship. How many of you know someone today that you know them better than you did when you first met them? What is the difference? Because you've read more about them or that you've had relationship and fellowship and personal communion with that person that has developed in you a deeper, intimate knowledge, not just of what you're going to do, but who you are. Are you with me on this? This is, for, this is knowledge. This is God's knowledge of us. Jesus said this, John 17. He gives an, the definition of what? Eternal. For this is eternal life. What's eternal life? I'm going to live forever. I'm going to live forever. I'm going to live forever. That's not the essence of eternal life that Jesus is emphasizing. Longevity. Because hell is longevity. Went to a wedding one time and one of the fellows who was, you know, I, I knew, was not a member of the church. And he was saying something about, no, no, it was a funeral, sorry. And he was saying something about whatever. And I said, you know, there's good news and bad news. We're all going to live forever, Todd. Everybody in this room is going to live forever. That's good news, but maybe it isn't. The difference is where? In either forever in the cauldrons of hell or forever in the face of God. We're all living forever. If you're breathing today, you will never stop living. You will never stop existing. Have you thought of that? Man, man. You'll go on forever. The question is not whether you go on forever. What's the question? Where? Where? This is eternal life. Eternal having to do with the life of God. That they may what? Gnosko. That they may know you. What does that mean? Personal, intimate, fellowshipping, knowledge, experience. That they may know you, the only true or who only truly are what? God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. John 17, 3 is a very good verse to be knowing. Matthew 125, I think this will put it into context with all of us yet. Joseph, remember who Joseph is in Matthew 1? Who is that? Mary's what? Well, not, it is a husband, but betrothed. They're engaged. They're engaged. Joseph, what? Did not know, what word? Gnosko, his wife Mary, until she conceived, you know, bore a son. What does that word know mean? It is a word that describes the most intimate, personal, physical relationship in marriage. Correct? To know. It's not something that Joseph didn't know Mary, what she's going to do and how she's going to act. The emphasis is that personal fellowship, intimate relationship. Do we see that? And with God, it is including what you're going to do. We don't deny that belt. We don't deny it. 
We know that. But that's not the primary emphasis. The primary is what? On the relationship, on the fellowship, on the intimacy. In each example, to know refers to an intimate knowledge that is a result of personal experience. It is the personal experiential knowledge of another. I know you. Gene knows me better than anyone else. Why? We've been married over 51 years. I know her better than anyone in this room. Why? Because we have related to one another, fellowship with one another, been with one another for over 51 years. This isn't just, wow, I was right. This isn't just, you heard that? Wow, man. Half the people in the room are not even 51. <laughs> it's not just a matter of my knowing my wife is going to do one, two, three, four. Basically, I know what she's going to do. She knows what I'm going to do. Why? Because she knows me and I know her. Am I getting it? I'm sorry, is the Holy Spirit getting it into you? This is critical. Why? Because the understanding of this word is the very foundation for the significance and the activity of the next four. Each of the next four are the result of what's in this word. If we miss this word, we will miss the significance of all the others. For knowledge is, you can write it down, for knowledge is primarily about God. It's not about me. It's about God. It's about God's decision eternally or before eternity was created. For knowledge is about God's decision before eternity, before Genesis 1-1. For knowledge is about God's decree and decision before Genesis 1-1. Of creating me and each one of us who are saved to be his people in love. He knows us or knew us before Genesis 1-1 as well as he knows us and will ever know us. He has never known us more or less. He's always known us intimately what? Fully. You got that, Beth? Fully. He's not knowing you more because today you did such and such. <laughs> He's not lo- loving you less because you did. Uh, fully. AJ, you got that? Fully. You see, this gnosko is not an academic activity. That's another word, E-D-I-O. How many of you know about Abraham Lincoln? Come on. You can raise your hand if you know about Abraham Lincoln. Who was he? He was what? He was a president, wasn't he? During what war? Civil War. You guys know him. You know Abraham Lincoln. In other words, you know about him. But do you know him? How many of you know Lincoln? How many of you know him? Well, no. I can read about him all day long, and I have an intellectual knowledge, but I ain't got no personal knowledge of him experientially. You got that? 
Do you understand that? I don't have any of that. There's the difference. There's the difference. I don't know the man. How many of you have ever seen him? We don't know him. But we know him. I know him, but I what? Don't know him. Surely? I know him, but what? I don't know him. I use two different words there. You see, when the prefix, when the prefix pro, remember the prefix comes before suffix after. <clears throat> when the prefix pro is placed in front of gnosko, the word is translated foreknown or prognosko. Foreknown. In other words, what? To have intimate, personal, relational knowledge and experience of before. You have it in a time frame. Now, there is a way, and I'm going to say it this way because it's very limited with us as human beings. My grandchildren were my grandchildren before they were ever born. Does that make sense to you? How many of you, your children, were your children before they were ever born? Where were they? Well, who were they? They were yours, but not yet in time. Do you see that? And before my grandchildren were born, I loved them. Do you understand? I loved my grandchildren before they were born. I loved my daughter before she was ever born. I didn't know her, but there is that. Are you with me on this? This is foreknowledge. It's pre-love existing before time. It's pre-love existing before time. Can you say amen? amen. Do, do we get it? I need to know if you understand something. Next week we'll give you a test. We'll find out who knows what. Christ, 1 Peter 1.20, was foreknown, prognosco, before the foundation of the world. I read a commentary and they said this about that. What that means is that the Father knew what the Son would do. Are you kidding Because the Father knew the Son comprehensively. And because the Son knew the Father comprehensively, therefore both knew what the other would do. Yes or no? Do we see where this knowledge of stuff is? Because the stuff is the fruit of the person. And in order to know the stuff, I have to know the root. And the stuff, the things, come out of the root of who you are, Bill. Right? And so if I'm only going to know the fruit, I don't know the root very well. But if I really want to know the fruit, then I must know the fruit, a root. God knows us rootly. <laughs> Is that a word? R-O-O-T-L-Y, rootly. Maybe somebody needs to write Noah Webster and find out, what is this man saying in here? You see, before the creation, well, listen to what Jesus said in John 10, 15. The Father knows gnosko me, and I know the Father. I just said that, didn't I? We know one another. Not that we know what you're going to do and how you're going to do it. I know you. Father, I know you. The Father says, I know you. And because of that, They are fully comprehending 
what each one will do. That's why the incarnation is possible. And the Spirit knows the Father and the Son, and they know the Spirit. How much? Comprehensively and immediately and eternally. So let's take another look at Romans 8.29. For those whom he what? Foreknew. This verse tells us that God sent the Spirit to bring us into Christ because we belong to him before Genesis 1.1. Why or how, excuse me, why are we saved? Typically, you ask someone that and they'll say, because I said yes to Jesus, right? Are you with me? That is not the right answer. May we begin to disabuse us of our self-centered looking at me and making me the whole stage. Why am I saved? Because you prayed to receive Jesus. No! I'm saved because I have been foreknown. Do we get this? Any of you have questions about it? I was foreknown. That's why God saved me. Donnie, why are you saved? God knew me ahead of time. Judy, God knew me ahead of time. Flo, God knew me ahead of time. Mosiah, God knew me when? Ahead of time. Cody, God knew me ahead of time. Is that good news? You see, because if the emphasis is on what I did, the burden of maintaining it is on what I do. And it isn't. The emphasis is God. And the burden for maintenance is what? God. Oh, that our theology will become literally God-centered. In saving us, the Spirit was uniting us into the pre, as the pre-created family of God, the pre-created bride of Christ. Isn't that right? Where were we before we were born? In the heart and mind of God. Where were we before we experienced being born again? In the heart and mind of God. And one day the Holy Spirit came to us and opened to us through revelation being born again, that I belong to God, to which I said yes by faith. Correct? We were chosen to belong to Christ on the basis of the foreknowledge of God the Father. Isn't that what First Peter tells us? To those who are residents of aliens who were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. Do we begin to see that we are here today not because of anything in or about us, but because of God? So this means that God's foreknowledge of us is not just knowledge of what we would do, but of whose we are in Christ. So what does it say? Romans 8.28 says what? For we know that God works. I'm sorry. Romans 8.29, for whom he what? Foreknew. Does it say what he foreknew? What pronoun is there? Remember these nouns and pronouns. Who, whom, whose. What does it say? Whose. I'm sorry. Whom or what? 
whom? It has to do with people. God knows people. And obviously, as a result, and an aspect of that knowledge, he also knows what you're going to do. Just quickly go through something in the Old Testament. And I want to make sure we see this, so I think I have time. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for to know is yada, Y-A-D-A. It's translated in the Septuagint. Remember, that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament in 250 B.C. They translated it into the Greek because so many Jews were Hellenistic, weren't living in Jerusalem area. They were living all over the world, you know, all over the Roman world. So they had to translate it from Hebrew to Greek because so many of these people didn't read Hebrew anymore. So the yada in Hebrew means to know, personal knowledge. It was translated gnosko. Genesis 4.1, and Adam what? Yada, his wife. And she conceived and gave birth to a son, Cain. So the Greek, Hebrew is what? Yada. What is the Hebrew? I'm sorry. What is Hebrew is Yada. What is the Greek? Gnosko. Adam knew. Gnosko. Yada. Same thing. This shows that God's foreknowledge speaks of his loving, intimate relationship, relational knowledge of us in Christ. Deuteronomy 7, verses 6, 7, and 8. God is explaining why I chose you. How many of you have ever thought, why did God save me? How many of you ever thought that? Come on, raise your hand. If you didn't think that, I don't know if you're thinking. Why did God save me? We're trying to figure out something in or about us. And Israel, you know, the Lord is telling Israel, Moses is giving this great redoing of the commandments in the Deuteronomy, the Deuteronomy, second, you know, the word Ronimus. Come on, old man. The word for Greek for law, but I forgot it now. What is it, Andy? Do you remember? Monos. And he says, let me tell you why God chose you. Let me tell you why God has done what he's done. Yahweh, remember the Lord, Yahweh. Your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. Why? Why? Because what? He loves you. Huh? When did God start loving his people? Before Genesis 1.1. This is prognosco. This is foreknowledge. I love you. His love for us did not begin when the day we were born into the kingdom. We were born into the kingdom because he has eternally loved us. Joshua 31.3. Yahweh have I, Yahweh is speaking. I loved you with an everlasting love. In other words, before you were born, I loved you. It was Yahweh's everlasting love that was the basis of his creating and calling Jeremiah as a prophet. And it's Yahweh's everlasting love for the reason we were created and called into Christ. Prognosco, foreknowledge. That's what this is all about. Yada is the term that expresses God's pre-creational intimate love for his people. Remember 1 John 4.10? And we usually look at these and we kind of don't get the context. This is love. What's love? What is love? Oh, that I love God. That ain't love. (laughs) That ain't love. It's not God's kind of love. What's love, Warren? 
Look at the verse. That God what? Love me. Love me. When did he love you? When did he love you? Before Genesis 1-1. He loved you before Genesis 1-1. I dare say that when Leonardo da Vinci painted the Mona Lisa, he had that face in his mind, and if you would, he loved that face. And then on the canvas of time, that face took on a physical form. I dare say that that man loved that painting not after he had finished it, but before and during and after. Are you with me? If a man can do that, can a God do that? If a man can do it, can a God do it? In fact, a man can do it because, a God, because God does it. Before the creation of the world, God loved us relationally in Christ. Foreknowledge, foreknown. This means that God's foreknowledge is the very basis for all that follows in Romans 8, 29, and 30. This word and its theological understanding. People don't like theology, but if we don't get it, our lives don't mean a whole lot sometimes because we're shaky. We must build the building of our lives on the theology of truth. And because of this word, hopefully this morning, all of us, all of us have a deeper and more settled and secure understanding of why we were saved and that we're going to remain saved in Christ. Amen? Amen. Four knowledge. Next week, we'll talk about the rest.